I'm turning today to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15 and verse 58. 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And our subject today is indebtedness, our motivation. And I'd like just to focus on this one verse. We've been proceeding uh, for some time through this first letter to the Corinthians but, uh, and looking at portions, but now a single verse because this is really the great exhortation to which the whole epistle leads and builds up. There are more exhortations, certainly, in chapter 16, but this is the great one in a single verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, the great concluding call. And we look first of all, and I should go very simply in an expository way through the verse, we look first at this word, therefore. For this reason, if you like, therefore, my beloved brethren, in the light of all that's gone before, with this in mind, here is the exhortation. The exhortation will be built on everything which has been previously said, and particularly in chapter 15. And look at verse 54 of chapter 15. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. For this reason, in the light of this, that death, that is condemnation, eternal condemnation, has gone. It has been swallowed up in victory. If we're in Christ, he suffered and died for our sin. He's taken away the sentence, the punishment, the condemnation. The law of God is satisfied. The law demands punishment. There must be punishment of sin. God must cleanse his moral universe by punishment of sin. And it's everlasting punishment for sin. But Christ has borne it away. In the light of that, it's indebtedness that leads to obedience to the exaltations of the word of God. And that's the first. Death and its penalty has gone. And then we could look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory. Why, you see, the aggressive stance of death and of sin from the day we're born, 
grow up and come up through infancy and, and childhood and teenage and sin is gathering strength all the time with its tyranny and its capturing power and invading our being and we're succumbing to it and becoming increasingly stained and ruined by it the practice of sin and unbelief and godlessness it has an aggressive stance it attacks us from the very beginning and you see that in these verses the sting of death the strength of sin but thanks be to God that the aggressive stance of sin leveled against us and condemnation has gone our greatest enemy yes we still battle with sin until death until glorification but no longer does it have mastery and dominion and no longer are we under its condemnation shouldn't we be overflowing day by day with gratitude to God it's indebtedness that leads to obedience to the command therefore my beloved brethren for this reason in the light of these things if we fail to think of these things and the nature of the victory but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ the new understanding we received at conversion the emancipated mind the new heart the new nature joy in the Lord reconciliation with God knowing him fixed for all eternity why these things should move us constantly for this reason all that's gone before well the first challenge is this from the word therefore are we unmoved by these things oh that's a long time ago I was converted you say I don't feel this indebtedness I don't feel this compulsion within me to please him and to obey him my heart is not melted regularly in daily devotions I do not melt before the Lord I now take it in my stride it doesn't move me as it used to what's the matter what's gone wrong what's happening in fact let's start with this are you really saved did you really find him was salvation just a sentimental experience which lasted a while it wasn't the real thing there isn't a continuing abiding perpetual sense of indebtedness and love for God or maybe uh, you've let it slip from your grasp you have it but you've let it slip because you never reflect and you never stop and pause and with all life's complexities and troubles and perhaps griefs come to you and difficulties you never stop to balance things and to think yes but I can submit all these to the Lord and this and that and the other does cause me difficulty and grief but I will not lose sight of the fact that I've been drawn to him and I belong to him
and he's transformed my life and saved me and put me on the road, the pathway to eternal glory. And I shall reflect upon the great things he's done in the past and even recently and even now in my life. And I will not let present troubles sweep away what I owe him, my praise and thanksgiving and love. Every Christian believer has a great responsibility to keep that sense of indebtedness and obligation and love to God alive in the heart. And we must. So the word therefore is actually of enormous importance. The 58th verse doesn't begin with the word my. My beloved brethren. It begins with the word therefore. For this reason. This is the engine. The motive of your response to the exhortations of God. Your indebtedness. And your heart which is moved with gratitude. And we must never forget that. So we examine ourselves first. And we may have to cry out to God to renew that spirit within us. Because it's vital to us. Therefore, my beloved brethren, don't be, as the Puritans would have called you, an unmoved professor of Christ. That's a disastrous situation to be in. Therefore, my beloved brethren, even that adds a reason for obedience. My beloved brethren, this is the church at Corinth. For all its problems, they were earnest believers, or the majority of them were, and they can be called my beloved brethren, saved, transformed, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Our sense of indebtedness must be in place. So now the exhortation itself, be ye steadfast. That will be followed by the word unmovable. Don't imagine the apostle is just uh, virtually repeating himself or using two near identical words to reinforce the point. Each word has different and great significance, as I'll show you. But the exhortation begins with the word steadfast. Be ye steadfast. It translates a Greek word which comes from the idea of being seated, set firmly. It's got that in it. Be ye steadfast, firmly seated. The picture, I suppose, is that of a ruler who would sit in a splendid seat put in the gate of the city or in the council chamber and it would preside or a magistrate or official to whom people would come for decisions, for guidance and so on and he would be seated. Everyone else would stand, the advocates would stand if a person was represented but the 
magistrate, judge, ruler would always be seated, indicating that he represented a settled rule and a set of rules that were inscribed, written down somewhere. His position was solid and established, and from that base he would give his judgments. And this is the idea here, be steadfast. Others say it suggests a statue. So before you get unmovable, you get the statue concept, possibly. Stability, never agitated, never swept away. Be ye steadfast, steadfast in doctrine. This is addressed to a church. It's also addressed to individuals. We are to be steadfast in doctrine. Now, this is particularly important today. There are so many things being taught, even often frequently, in Bible-believing churches of one kind or another which have little or no foundation in the word of God. This is an age of gimmicks and innovations. This is an age of uh, discovery and implementing all kinds of new things. Over the last 50 years, I've seen it. So many new ideas have been introduced by so many figureheads and personalities and authors. Fad after fad has swept through the churches. New things. But the apostle would say, under inspiration, be ye steadfast, seated, firm. There is a settled body of doctrine in the word of God. So when it comes to teaching and doctrine, we don't expect things to change every five minutes. The word of God is complete and has been for generations. And it is our yardstick for everything. Everything must be based on the word of the living God. And we're particularly helped and privileged in this 21st century because there have been years of careful definition of the doctrines in the word of God. We love the great 17th century English confessions of faith. The Westminster Confession. The two Baptist confessions, the Savoy Confession for the Independents or the Congregationalists, so well, all based on the Westminster, but so carefully thought out. And yet today there are people with little or no understanding of the historic Christian faith and its confessions, and they invent new things by the minute. Be ye steadfast. Can't be. Around... Uh, uh, the year 1900, the Pentecostal movement came into being. And when it came into being, originally, it was a very tiny fraction of the Christian church and a number of people, and in the first days, simple but earnest people wrongly thought, they made the mistake, thinking that the signs and wonders of the New Testament ought to be manifested in every age. And they didn't rightly interpret or understand the scriptures and the clear teaching of the word of God. And they were even less acquainted with the great confessions of faith 
and things that had been established for generations. So they made a mistake. They were good people, they were believers, they were earnest, but there was a mistaken direction. And on that mistaken direction, over time, well, Pentecostalism built up, but it was still tiny and just a strand among the churches until about the 1960s. And then the charismatic movement picked it up and exploded everything. And all the innovations began and the crazy things. And although there are many people who are sincere and earnest, the con men got in, the confidence tricksters, the charlatans and the rogues. And many of these churches are just run by money-making phonies. But the elaboration of things that have nothing to do with the word of God. And it all started with one wrong turning. Be ye steadfast. It's so important not to be swept away by human inventions and modern things. And it's not only true of doctrine, but it's true of practice. You often find people who are defending the doctrines, but they give way on the practice. So they allow the worldly music to come into the church and all the entertainment stuff into the house of God, into the church, and there's utter confusion between the sacred and profane. And the new generation growing up doesn't know the difference between the church and the world anymore. And crazy and irreverent things happen because we were not steadfast, sticking not only to the doctrines given, but to the methods of the word of God, the practices. So the ethics are as important as the doctrines. And that's what the apostle means here. Therefore, in the light of all you've received, and based on your indebtedness, my beloved brethren, be steadfast in doctrine and practice. Now, with that in mind, we move to the word unmovable. Unmovable. What's the difference? Well, here now, the word demonstrates at least implies, but more than that, that we are under attack. It's quite different from steadfast. That magistrate isn't under attack. That ruler isn't under attack. That statue isn't under attack. Be steadfast, but now be unmovable because there are all kinds of forces seeking to drive you from your position. So this word bears them in mind more particularly. Don't be removed from the truth or from the practices by whatever forces are active in the church at the present time. Now we've mentioned the charismatic movement, for example. But what might move us? What forces... Well, all these uh, erroneous books that the devil makes sure are published. 
with wrong methods and wrong doctrines in them. And books are ubiquitous and penetrates everywhere. And now, even greater influence, the internet. And don't forget that for every sound sermon that is posted on the internet, there's half a dozen unsound ones posted. For everything that defends the Lord and presents the gospel, there are heretics and atheists and unbelievers and attackers or people who have wrong doctrine pouring on the internet. I was only thinking in discussion with someone a few weeks ago. If you look up all kinds of things on the internet concerning the scripture, you cannot avoid these hundreds of people posting authoritative-looking articles discrediting the scripture, showing up the alleged discrepancies and contradictions and how boldly they do it. And they talk such rubbish and such nonsense. And some of them haven't any idea how to handle the scripture or what they're doing. And, and they parrot these objections and protests and people find all this. The internet is strewn with it. But there are things that will ensnare and trip up sound Christians too. There are endless people produce their very own podcasts, their very own sermons. There are countless women who shouldn't be preaching anyway, producing programs and so on on the internet. Who appointed them? Nobody. They appointed themselves. One day, she, or it may be a he, said, I am a preacher of God's word. No church ever appointed them, or authenticated them, or approved them, or accredited them. No one ever showed them, or trained them. But off they go, and you discover sometimes sound Christians. Oh, I love to watch so-and-so, and I love to watch so-and-so. This is a crazy person who has visions every five minutes and God speaks to them supposedly and says to them the most preposterous untruths. And even Christians don't know this. This is a phony. They're not taking care. There are all kinds of things that will drive you from soundness in doctrine and soundness in practice. And we have to Watch out these days. Years ago, when I was a young Christian, there were a lot of rules taught in churches. And they were good rules. They were sound rules. Rules to keep us from worldliness. Rules to keep us from things that were inconsistent with the Christian life. And so people would tell you in your Bible class when you were young, Christian, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do that, do that, do that, and so on. Unfortunately, very often, the teachers stopped justifying the rules. Scripture says don't do this for this reason. Here, it's in this passage. The Lord shows us here, and this is the reason why. They stopped teaching the background, and the rules became taught without explanation. So very often, 
Well, you can guess what happened next. People began to say, what are these rules? Where did they come from? Why are we bound by them? And they began to be thrown away, first by the young, then throughout the churches. And that's tragic, because there are rules of conduct in the Bible. There are quite a few. Warnings, counsels, exhortations, rules of conduct. Now today it's fashionable for ignorant people to say, rules? There are no rules. I'm a Christian. That is legalism. And they discredit the fact that God has set standards for us to live by. And it's foolish because they don't know what legalism is. Legalism is when you have rules and you tell people that this is how you're saved by keeping these rules, that these rules will get you saved and get you to God. Well, in true churches, nobody's saying that. Rule-keeping will never secure your salvation. It's by grace alone. It's an act of God. We come by faith and repent of our sin and trust in Christ. And we're converted to him and he does it all. But afterwards, we owe him our lives. And with his help, we seek to keep his rules. Not because it secures salvation, that would be legalism, but because it's what God wants of his people. And we will strive to obey. Of course there are standards. Hence this exhortation. And many, many others. So dear friends, uh, we believe that we must obey God and be unmovable. The uh, Apostle Paul says to Timothy that he speaks to him that thou mayest know how to behave, how you should behave yourself, conduct yourself in the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. There are rules. Now, at the moment, there is war, as you know, in Ukraine. And from our point of view, it seems to us that Russia and Putin have done a terrible thing. And they are engaged in headlong aggression. And now all kinds of war crimes are being reported and we read about it in the news. But in Russia, we're also told that there is... uh, widespread support for Putin and the war. Well, you say, how is that? Are Russian people as hard as nails? Are they like Putin? Are they just as callous to engage and support his terrorism and his acts? And we naturally begin to find it, try and find an explanation Well, no, they've been subject to so many Kremlin lies and so much propaganda, misuse of the term, but that's what we call it. 
and so much brainwashing that many ordinary people, they say, I trust Mr. Putin. And I support him, believe in him. Yes, we're reading now of trouble at the edges. People don't want to be conscripted and so on, and a certain amount of unrest, but by and large, there's support. And we're baffled. We say, how can that be? Now I'll tell you why I'm saying all this. Something's happened to our younger generation. Something's happened. And it rather reminds me of this. I'll explain what I mean. When I was young, the churches had very largely got into a very Arminian, sentimental condition. Wherever you went, church I was in as a youngster, the elders, the grey heads, they were all Calvinists. You took baptismal classes in that church, you would be taught the old doctrines. But the minister and the middle-aged and younger people, they were all very Arminian in their views and lightweight and so on. And that was puzzling. And that was the picture, very largely, with exceptions, throughout the country. And then something happened. Books started to come into the country, firstly from the USA and then published here. Puritan works, doctrinal works, and the younger people started to discover them. Well, what's this? What's the, what are these doctrines of grace? What are these great doctrines of the, the confessions of the 17th century? The doctrines of the Reformation that have been largely laid aside. The practices, the way of doing things. And young people began to question in their churches. And everywhere you went, you would meet other young people and the, the conversation would be, have you read this book? Have you seen so-and-so's book on this? Have you seen that? And the young people were ready to rebel. They were inquiring. They wanted to know, why doesn't this conform to scripture? Why doesn't that conform? And so you had the kind of reform movement gather speed all over the country. People were talking to each other, writing to each other, discovering the old doctrines, seeing where the doc churches had slipped from the mark, and so on. And you've always been able to count on young people to be alert and asking questions and examining things. Until recently. What's happened? Now, everywhere, the churches are behaving like pop concerts. And they've thrown away reverence. And they're adopting the styles and the clothing and the conducts and the entertainments of the world. Just now, everything has sunk to such a low standard. And you've got people often pastoring churches, Bible-believing churches, who wouldn't have been accepted as members years ago, 
They might have been converted, but they wouldn't have been let in. They wouldn't have passed a membership interview years ago because they hadn't given up the world. And now they're running the show. But what's happened to the young? The young come from the provinces as students to London and so on, and they accept it. They go along with it. There are no rebellious young now. This is the most conformist younger generation I've ever seen. I'm in my 80s. I've been in churches for over 60 years. And I've never seen an age when the young, uncritically, like little lambs, follow the status quo and nobody asks any questions and nobody is dissatisfied. Astonishing. Where have all the rebels gone? What have we done? Is it something we put in the tea? Impossible. Is it the way they teach them in the schools? What is it has produced such a conformist generation? All the rubbish that goes on in churches wouldn't stand for five minutes if only the young were like they were 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Dear friends, I love young people. If you've come to London as a student and you've got brains, intelligence and judgment, please use it. When you find yourself in a new church and the youth leader says, come, let's all go to the bar. Hello? Ask? Use your mind. God has equipped you. Where is that in the scripture? Where in the scripture is the world and the church married together? What's going on? Ask questions. Examine what they do. What is the basis of their activities, of their contemporary style in everything, their lack of reverence? Where does it all come from? Absence of prayer meetings and so on. Ask the questions, friends. God has equipped you with a mind. Don't be part of the sheep generation. Be active. I'm not saying to you, do it our way, do it my way. I'm saying, pick up your Bible. Pray to God for light. Be ready to exercise discernment. If only that were to happen, a lot of the things that go on today would really start to collapse and would not be followed and trusted. These are the words, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor, the word labor means painful toil. It comes from the Greek verb to cut, not easy labor. Your strenuous labor for the Lord is not in vain, is not futile. You'll live for him. You'll be used by him. 
You'll be a blessing to lost souls. You'll be a blessing to fellow Christians. You'll be a blessing to your family. I remember donkeys years ago. Among our young people and students, two people were conspicuous to me. One was a young man, very tall, and uh, came from a very good church, came with a profession of faith. We saw him Sunday morning, as I recall, never again. He was there every week, but never evening service, never Bible study, never prayer meeting, never put his hand to the plough, was a professing Christian, had a lot to say, but never did a thing for the Lord, wasn't available for anything. He was a medical student. Eventually, of course, graduated, went off into practice and so on. Last thing I heard of him some years ago, I'm going back a long way. He was uh, an elder in a church. It was a do-nothing church. Certainly the elders weren't an inspiration in that church. As he was a student, so he was an adult. But in contrast, there was a young woman, and uh, she was always here. She was a medical student too. She was always here, always participating. Took a Sunday school class, launched herself into the Christian life. Ironically, she took all the medals at medical school when she graduated. And the church she ended up in, she was always a great tower of strength. What sort of a student will you be? The Lord's? These words are for all of us, every one of us, friends. Therefore, for this reason, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, firmly seated in doctrine, in practice, unmovable by any influence that comes along. Of course, the influence could be recreation, carries you away, all sorts of things, neglect devotions, neglect attendance and study. Falling away of attendance is always the first step of backsliding. Unmovable. Always abounding. What a word. Abounding. It means excelling over the best. There's a double superlative in the Greek. Abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord.